0: What an appropriate lesson on humility, the day we're preaching on humility. So we have in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 all of these wonderful blessings and truths that are ours in Jesus Christ. First and foremost, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's caused us to be born again through the imperishable seed of the living and abiding Word of God. We've learned how he ransomed us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's made us into living stones which are themselves being built into a spiritual house. We are a holy people and a holy priesthood. We have this wonderful glory that is yet to come, and and yet we wait for it, don't we? we? We live in this world and we're passing through. But because we belong to God... We're not to be surprised that we're going to have fiery trials that come our way. They will come, as Pastor Allen had taught us just a couple weeks ago. The reality is, as long as we live in this fallen world, persecution and suffering are going to be part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, they have a divine purpose in refining us and preparing us for the glory that is ours yet to come. So, be, because of this uh, objective truth of who we are in Christ, and because of the objective hope that we have of, of where we're going, we are to live as exiles and pilgrims in this world. People who are on a journey to that heavenly city, people who are only taking up temporary residence here and now. As God's or as stewards of God's grace, We are to live honorably in in all of our relationships in the world, whether they're Christian, whether they're with unsaved people in in different nations. We are to live honorably, but at the same time have this expectation that we are to suffer for righteousness' sake. How? Well, that's a big question. How, How are we to deal with sufferings if they're going to come? What is the attitude that we're to have as we walk through this life in sufferings? Well, do you remember what the attitude of, 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 of a pilgrim and an exile is supposed to be? It's to be one of humble submission, isn't it? Well, it's going to be the same thing here. Peter picks up that theme. Uh, instead of applying it simply to pilgrims and exiles, he gives it <coughs> a, a more specific uh, uh, application in terms of who we are in dealing with sufferings. Now at first glance, as as Wilson was reading chapter five there and you were looking at at your Bibles, it's pretty hard to see whether there's a a connection at all between say the the charge to the elders at the beginning or or what it says a little bit later on that that, uh, the devil is roaming and roaring like a hungry lion looking to whom he can uh, consume and devour. But I, I want to propose to you this this morning. That this idea of godly humility actually permeates everything that's going on in chapter 5. First, we have the principle stated in verse 5b. And that principle is that humility is the key virtue or characteristic that we're to put on. Then in verses 1 through 5, we have that that humility is actually the foundation for a healthy life in the body, the church. Followed by verses 6 through 11, it speaks of humility as the foundation for a healthy spiritual life. And then finally, in verses 12 through 14, we have this charge to stand firm in humility. It's the true grace of God, and we're going to see what he means by that in a minute. So we have a principle stated, and we have the principle applied in two different areas within the body of Christ, as well as within our spiritual lives in a context there. And then we're called to hold fast to that. So as we start this morning, if we look at our Bibles, you'll notice that there is a separation between verses 5 and 6, right? But if we remember that the grammar and even the separation of those paragraphs is arbitrary. It was done by those who are translating the Bibles and printing the Bibles. They're not in the original letter. We look at that and we say, well, who is Peter really talking to? Most of the, the best commentators out there would say that the separation isn't between verse 5 and 6. The separation is actually between the first part of verse 5 and the second part of verse 5. That is verse 5a and verse 5b. And that's where we see this principle of humility being presented for us as the foundation for all all of spiritual life. Now, that's important because when we look at that we say there is a difference between the people he's talking about. He's talking to the elders and to the congregation in the first five and a bit verses. And then afterward, there's a deliberate shift in the use of pronouns and, and how he's addressing people. And, and so that really says to us that that principle is set there in the, the second part of verse 5. That is the, the, the overarching theme that, that presents everything. What does Peter say? put on or clothe yourselves in humility. Now, we know in different parts of the New Testament, as Christians, we're, we're told to put on the armor of God. We're told to put on the righteousness of God. We're told to put on Christ himself in the, in the letter of Romans. But Peter says, clothe yourselves. And, and that's a very specific word. And it gets lost. The meaning gets lost in English, unfortunately, on us. Because this is the only time that word is used in the whole of the New Testament. The only time. It has to do with somebody taking an apron, putting it around their neck, and then tying it off. But very specifically, it speaks of a servant or a slave. Someone who takes this apron, which is a sign that they are actually serving someone else. They, they, they put it upon themselves and they tie that knot as, as tight as possible and that's their identification and their service for their master. Now The purpose of the apron, obviously, is to keep them their, their clothes from getting dirty. But it, again, it also marks them as a servant or a slave, someone who is in service to someone else. Now, as I was looking at this this week, I couldn't help... But think of what the Apostle John presents for us in John chapter 13. You know, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, spent time with the the disciples. And what does he do? He takes off his outer garments, and he takes a towel, and he wraps it around himself to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, if you're observant, you, you would have caught that this is a command clothe yourselves. But what you may not have caught is that spe- Peter's using a very specific form of the verb here that actually has a, a, an intention behind it. This is something you're to do like you are a soldier listening to your general. This is a soldier-like obedience that you are to do. This is your responsibility. If you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, this is vital for your spiritual life. And that's why the second part of verse 5 really stands out as the principle around everything else that's going on. So what Peter's saying is, if we are followers of Jesus Christ... If we are God's people, then we are servants of God, and we must make sure that we put on this apron good and tight because when we do so, not only are we putting on the the apron of service, but we are declaring ourselves in service of Jesus Christ himself. Each and every one of us must gird ourselves with humility one to another. To emphasize how important this is for, for our spiritual life, Peter then says what? For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. To, to those who are humble in spirit, he gives grace to live a life that glorifies him even in the midst of struggles and, and sufferings. But to those who, God, who, who are proud, God opposes And the image there is is of a a military general who aligns his armies up against the enemy. And and that should strike fear in our heart. If we are proud, if we struggle with this, it's a terrible thing to consider that God has set His face against us. Pride, arrogance, Self-centeredness are, are great offenses to God. Why? Because if we were once sinners who now have been saved by the power of sin, saved by, by, uh, from the consequence of sin, and if we truly know the, the mercy and the grace of God, how can we say that there is any good in us? How can we say that there is any good thing about us unless it is prompted and brought into being by God himself. Humility is what? Humility is our soul bent in submission to a sovereign God. Now, quite often, we get mixed up in in the context of what the meaning of that was because the Bible has a very specific application or meaning, but the world has something different. Humility is has nothing to do with natural characteristics that we may or may not have. It's not simply because I'm introverted or I'm meek, I'm quiet, I'm mild-natured, I'm peaceful. There are many good people around the world, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, who are meek and gentle. What what makes the difference? It's Christ. And, And just because we're outgoing, because we're talkative, because we have strong convictions, we're gregarious, or we, 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 we're extreme extroverts, it doesn't mean that we're not humble. Neither is humility a lack of passion or strong convictions. It's not even the willingness to lay aside and, and not go into battle over an important spiritual principle. Humility, again, is the lowly disposition of our soul before a holy God. It's the inward recognition of who we truly are. We are creatures dependent in every way on a creator God who sustains every aspect of life. It's a recognition that not only was there nothing worthy in me, that God should look down upon me and save me, but he did. It's a recognition of of how sinful we still are in our life, how our minds and our hearts are wandering and captivated by, by, by sin. It's a recognition that we are still in every way dependent upon that grace and mercy. It's a recognition that issues forth out of that and says, well, I'm the same as every other brother and sister who, who claims to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I'm part of a greater whole, the church. And there's, you know what? There's nothing really different about me or noteworthy that that makes me any different. There's nothing I can do that has any lasting intrinsic spiritual values. Now, now granted, there there may be different roles that we occupy, different responsibilities. We may have different spiritual gifts and, and even different degrees of spiritual gifts. But all of these things are dependent on the grace of mercy of God as well. It's a spiritual acknowledgement that changes our disposition so that we desire to serve others as Christ has served us. That kind of humility is pictured for us in Philippians 2 so perfectly. There we read, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's a degree of humility that Paul says... Make my joy full as your spiritual father. Let this mind be in you that was also in Jesus Christ. And you know what? This is what it means. He says, do nothing from selfish, uh, for selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This is the humility that Paul says we're to put on towards one another. The apron of service. And and as such, it it becomes the foundation for life in the body, life in the church. It it starts with a recognition of who we truly are before God. Nothing. But then it recognizes that we are all nothing, and I am called to serve you, and you are called to serve me. And and so it, it issues forth in servitude one to another. In a more direct way, Peter now applies this principle of humility to leadership in the church. He says, let's talk to the elders, let's talk uh, to those who are giving spiritual oversight in the church. But you notice, it's not just to them. He also says, I want to talk to those who they're serving as well. To the elders, he says, I know what it's like to serve, I'm an elder. I know what it means to suffer because I've watched Jesus Christ himself suffer. I've seen him weep over Jerusalem. I've seen him nailed to the cross and yet call down a prayer upon the apostles and upon Mary. And because of that, I know what godly humility I know how it it deals with suffering in this world. Elders, shepherd the people of God as God himself would. Don't do it because you have a sense of obligation. Do it because you're willing to do it. You want to do it. Don't do it because of personal gain, but do it eagerly simply to lift the other person up. Don't do it in a domineering way, but be an example to the flock. Elders, you have a responsibility in your leadership to live out humility before the sheep, to model what humility should look like in season and out of season, in good times and in times of brokenness. It won't be easy to love and to serve as Christ has done that for us, but persevere because there is a crown of unfading glory that awaits you. Now, another time we could actually take those first five verses and and unpack it more and have a a more in-depth sermon in terms of this relationship uh, and the call to elders, but that's not our purpose. I want us to look at the overall view, the picture of where Peter's going with this. Because, again, as he's not simply talking to the elders. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. You see that? There, there's a reciprocal responsibility of humility one to another. Now, in some of our Bibles, if you have a King James, for example, it will probably say young men there. In the ESV and many others, it's simply younger people. Paul's not trying to point out brash young men. He's not simply talking about all you who are young in the faith. He's simply making a distinction between those who are called to lead because they've been around the block a few times. They've walked through the challenging waters of life. They have a a deeper and greater uh, uh, experience of life. And they, they've learned how to relate to that, to faith and love for God. So the command to submit to the elders is countered by this, char- actually the, the charge to the elders is this, now countered by this charge that everyone, young, old, male, woman, slave, free, to be submissive to their leaders. Now that brings up a question. <laughs> How far do we submit? What are they asking us to do? I think to answer that, we need to ask another question. How does humility play into this counterbalance between elder and congregation? Because here's the thing, if, if the elders are leading humbly with a shepherding heart, and just let me say that that should always include taking the pulse of the congregation. It's like a husband making decisions without consulting his wife. If pastors or elders are leading in a godly shepherding way, and they still make a decision that we may not be in full agreement with, do we disagree because we think we know better? Do we disagree because we trust in our understanding of situation better? Are we angry because we didn't get our way? You see, a healthy church is dependent on this humility one to another. It's the basis of church life. But it's also the basis, very specifically, acting humbly in the roles and the relationships that God has established us within the body of Christ. So it affects how we interact one another, but it also interacts how we deal with leadership in small group, how we deal with elders, how we deal with deacons, being humble and recognizing those who are put in authority over us for a ministry. Humility, then, is the key to being a good shepherd, isn't it? Humility is also the key to being a good sheep. Have you ever thought about that? Being a good shepherd, being a good sheep, humility is the absolute necessity of our life. Not only is humility the foundation for church life, it's also the foundation for a a virtuous life a life that is honoring unto God and upright before the world, a life that brings great spiritual rewards for the believer. Peter has just finished telling us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so on the basis of this simple truth, he encourages us in the strongest way possible in the command. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, as we've already seen, humility is first and foremost a soul bent in right subjection, submission before God. But now, in a very practical way, Peter tells us what this means for us in everyday life. He says, if we trust in the sovereignty of God and if we're in right relationship with Him, We're able to cast all of our anxieties and our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. And think about what our anxieties. Many people these days are are wrestling with endemic and systemic anxiety. Anxiety is an overwhelming fear of worry and stress. Stress and anxiety, that that something is about to happen that's out of our control. Or or something that is about to happen that is not going to be good for us. It's going to be detrimental. It's going to be a challenge. But here's the thing. Because God cares for us, he always has our best interest at heart, no matter what the situation because he cares for us and always has the greatest good for us at the center of what he's doing, we can trust. Because no matter what, he is doing it for his own glory. We need to trust this God who is sovereign. And here's the thing: if, if as believers, we have this <clears throat> uh, God is, we have this belief that God is only ever got our greatest good at the heart of what he's doing with us, then humbling ourselves before him, humbling ourselves at his right hand is our only right response. There should be never a moment when we judge or question God's goodness towards us. So we have this wonderful truth, this wonderful reality that in a right relationship of, with God in, in one of humbling ourselves under the, the power and the authority of God we're able to cast our anxieties and our worries on him because we're trusting that he is sovereign and he's in control of all things. Now as wonderful as that truth is and it's it's a wonderful truth to contemplate, especially when we're struggling. There's something more prominent, a, a greater and more important blessing and reason why we should humble ourselves be under the, the mighty hand of God. Peter says this, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, humility was the necessary precondition of being saved. It, we had to be humble before the Lord. We had to recognize that we were sinners before a holy God, that, that there was nothing good and valuable in us that God look down upon us and show us grace and mercy, and yet we threw ourselves on that grace and mercy, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But what Peter's saying here, proper humility before God is also the call and the ongoing experience of every one of us who have our hope that we will one day be glorified by faith. So not only is it, (coughs) not only is humbling ourselves before God the necessary to actually being saved, the ongoing humbling of ourselves under the mighty hand of God is the necessary ongoing outwork of faith in our life that we will one day be glorified so here if you hope in eternity then continually coming to grips with who you are as a sinner saved by grace must be a part of your walk with god it is, it is the only right position under a sovereign God and recognizing that we have come to him by nothing of our own hand and, and nothing continues to, to maintain us in a right relationship if it weren't for the grace of God. So it, it's incumbent upon us to con- put this apron on continually to, to come to grips with who we are. Sinners before a holy God, saved by faith and desiring to walk in a deeper way with him. Peter also tells us in verse or starting in verse 8 to watch out, to be sober-minded, to keep a constant vigil over our soul. That that maintaining that right relationship with God why? Because there is a real threat to our spiritual lives. If we're sloppy There is a threat here. Satan himself prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour whomever he can. His desire is to cause us to fall from grace and to bring shame to the name of Jesus. Because of that, we are to resist him. We are to rebuff his advances as he comes at us and whispers in our ear, but just do this. We need to be vigilant and and watchful over our soul, but what exactly are we being watchful of? I don't think it's simply know and beware that Satan himself is out there and, and he's ready to devour you. I think when you understand the context of what Peter's talking about here, it must be being watchful and maintaining over this right disposition that we have before God that our souls are, are main, being maintained in this humble relationship of creator and created of being humble under the mighty hand of God that's what we need to be watchful over because that's when Satan finds a foothold in our lives isn't it when we start to think that we can do we can spiritually go it alone When we start to think that our understanding of the situation around us is better than God's or we can control things better than God, when we forget that we are simply the creature and and we're in total dependence upon God in all things. And how much more so is that important to, to guard our soul, to be vigilant over our soul when anxieties build up in times of suffering? They build up to the point where we, we start to, to question God's goodness. We trust in ourselves. And we walk away from the narrow path. There will be times of suffering and trials. That's part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's what we call emblematic of our faith. To follow Jesus in his footsteps. But here's the thing. After we have suffered a while, after we have persevered, the God of grace will restore, conform, or confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Now in verse 12, Peter says something that I think is pretty amazing. I had to take a a couple of days and work it out in my own brain what he's meaning. He says, Humility is the true grace of God. And by that, I, I, I believe he means first, it is the, the first virtue or grace and the blessing of God that comes to us by faith. That God would humble our souls before him and awaken in us the reality of sin in our lives but it is also the foundation of all the other graces, all of the other virtues, like kindness and love and forgiveness. The only way these other virtues can grow and flourish in our lives is if we have a right disposition before God. The only way we can love one another The only way we can show compassion to one another, the only way we can forgive one another, as God is calling us to, is if we act as a servant. And that demands that we renounce ourselves. Humility is the absolute prerequisite not only to coming to God, but also keeping a right relationship with God. As pilgrims in this world, humility is the essential grace of our life. It's the foundation of church life. It is the foundation for a virtuous life. We are to put it on in the same way a servant would take that smock or that apron and put it over our heads and and, and take those strands and wrap it so tight that it just won't come off to gird ourselves in that humility. And when it's in place... It actually becomes the instrument through which we can serve one another, we ensure the blessings of God, we can endure sufferings, and we can resist the devil. Let us embrace and hold fast to humility, a lowliness of spirit as the essential grace of our lives. Let us pray.